Well, greetings, church family. Excited to welcome you to another online service. And uh, as we're heading into the Christmas season, I really hope you can choose to engage and celebrate the birth of our Savior.
Let's sing. Hark the herald angels sing Glory to the newborn King Peace on earth and mercy mild God and sinners reconciled Joyful in nations rise Joy the triumph of the skies 
Thank you, worship team. We love worshiping with you. Well, welcome, ABF Online. My name is Pastor John, and don't you love it? It is finally December. We're getting ready for Christmas. Hey, I want to remind you of a couple of things. Number one, you know that we love to pray, and I hope that you take advantage of that. Would you text us at 97,000, and we'd love to be able to pray for you. Secondly, many of you have been wondering, well, what else does ABF do? We'd love for you to get connected with us online by going to our website at agurabible.org. There's a lot of ministry happening here, and we'd love you to know more about it. While you're on the website, we would, would like you to make a donation to ABF. You can go right to the Give tab. And you know, we couldn't do any of this without the faithful support of generous givers just like yourself. And then lastly, we want to be able to prepare our hearts for this message. So would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can hear your words. There's places in the world where that isn't possible, but we have the freedom to do that. And so we listen intently And we want to make a difference in our world. So what we hear today, Lord, would you help us to apply it so we can? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, worship team. Well, thanks for leading us and excited to be with you uh, today as we're starting into the Advent season and starting a new series in the book of Isaiah. And uh, as we're getting started, I just want to ask you just to, to reminisce with me for a moment and just think back. And to, to the day that you were first discovering Jesus and making the decision whether you'd follow him with your life or not, I, I'm just wondering for you and your story, what was it that convinced you to follow Jesus? What was it that convinced you to believe in him, to give your life over to him? Was it maybe as a, as a young kid? Was it the faithful teaching of Bible stories in Sunday school? Was it the flannel graph that won you over? Was that it? Was that season? Or maybe a little later in life? Was it junior high at a at a camp experience, listening to a, uh, something by a fireside chat or something like that, that you heard compelling? Or maybe as an adult, was it an experience, an encounter with Jesus that couldn't be explained other than him reaching out to you with his love? I don't know what it was in your story, what you point to. Maybe it was a friend that was talking to you. Maybe maybe for you, it was more of some self-discovery where you started to dig in and really ask some tough questions. And you wanted to see things proven before you're willing to follow. Well, that's where I think this series is helpful because when I consider all the different arguments and things that are compelling towards the belief in Scripture, belief in the message of Scripture, probably to me the most uh, convincing or compelling argument for the reliability of the Bible is its track record in successfully predicting the future. Think about it when you study God's word, there's not a a shortage of prophecy found in it. Did you know that when you do a a count across the pages of scripture that there's 1,817 prophecies in scripture? And really they're covering a really wide range of different topics, whether it's the rise and fall of kingdoms, whether it's the predicting and talking about actually the the names of coming kings, which I think is pretty mind-boggling, 
whether it's the specifics about the nation of Israel or whether it's about the Messiah, his birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, all of that is prophesied in Scripture. And really, prophecy falls into two different camps in Scripture, either things that have been fulfilled or things that were still like the book of, much of the book of Revelation that were waiting to see how it's actually going to play out. Well, the book of Isaiah is jam-packed and it's a, with prophecy, and it's written about, about 600 years before Jesus, somewhere between 739 and 681 B.C. It's interesting that in the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, with the, which they date back to about 125 years before Christ, that almost the entirety of Isaiah was found and it is jam-packed with prophecy about future events. I want to just take a, a quick moment just to touch on a few of the things, kind of a, a partial list of things that the book of Isaiah prophesied. It's pretty impressive when you consider these. First thing to mention, and this is a list, you can see it there on your, on your screen. The northern kingdom of Israel would cease to exist. Pretty cool when you can pre predict that. The predicted that the southern kingdom of Judah would be conquered and the people would be exiled all over the place. Isaiah 35 talks about the land of Israel one day being restored. Isaiah 13 talks about Babylon, that it would be attacked specifically by a people group called the Medes. Isaiah 13 also talks about Babylon's kingdom would be overthrown permanently. In chapter 14, it talks about it being reduced to a swampland, which no one could have predicted. But later, as they've uncovered the city of Babylon, they discovered that the water table had risen and the entire area was flooded and covered as excavators discovered it. Isaiah chapter 40 talks about, begins talking about the Messiah, that he would be preceded by a messenger. Isaiah 7 talks about the Messiah being born of a virgin. Isaiah 11 talks about him being from, uh, called a Nazarene. Isaiah 35, he'd perform miracles. Isaiah 6, he'd speak in parables. Isaiah 50, he'd be spat upon and beaten. Isaiah 53, he'd be silent before his accusers. Isaiah 53 also talks about being crucified by criminals. Isaiah 53 talks about him dying for our sins. Isaiah 53 also talks about him being buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah 26 then even prophesies his resurrection. All of this a hundred plus years before Jesus was even on earth. Pretty awesome when you think about the testimony that's in Scripture that validates it. And when you start to consider its track record of successfully predicting, predicting things, you start to realize, man, this is a book that I can put my trust in. I can find hope in because it speaks not just of what we're currently dealing with. It perfectly predicts what is to come. I love that we're going to get a glimpse this week as we've titled this, this series uh, talking about Advent, which the very first week of Advent talks about hope, and that's exactly what this text brings us. 
Lots of times in Isaiah, it's very specific in the prophecies that it's predicting. And sometimes it's a little bit more, uh, I'd say poetic, where it's painting a picture, if you will, of what is going to come with the coming Messiah. How is that going to impact? How is that going to transform? And it's hard to look at it without realizing that hope is splashed all over the pages that we're looking at today. Let me pray before we dive in. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance going into this Christmas season to look at the book of Isaiah and how many ways it points to your coming. We're so thankful for that, that it's not a book that was just man-made or manufactured, but it was God-breathed. It came directly from you. We can place our trust and our hope in that because of that. We ask now as we settle in going into this series that you teach us about yourself, about your character, that you're trustworthy, that we can place our hope in you. We submit this time to you now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to be in chapter 61 of Isaiah here today. And in this uh, four-week series, we're jumping around a little bit from different passages. Man, I was looking at it and I was like, man, we could do a 10-week series just with prophecies about the Messiah in the book of Isaiah. But we're going to focus on a couple different sections here, chapter 61. But before we look at chapter 61 in Isaiah, I want to highlight the fact that this is one of the few prophecies that's actually found in both the New Testament and Old Testament. Let me explain what I mean. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, Jesus actually reads Isaiah 61. Let's take a look at that first before we get into Isaiah. Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, I like that idea, he was a regular, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa, pretty intense scene there. Imagine being there in that room. Everyone knew that this was a text that was describing what the coming Messiah would do. And it intentionally focused on the fact that it says all of their eyes were fixed on him. Like what's going to happen next? What does he say after reading the text? What does he say? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He then goes on to confront them because he realizes they're asking questions saying, wait, isn't this the, the carpenter's son? Isn't this Jesus? We know him. He, he pushes back and he confronts them about not a, a prophet not, not having honor in his own town. They were so upset about it. We're told in chapter, in, there in Luke chapter 4, 
that they actually tried to chase him out of town and throw him off of a cliff based on what he read there in the synagogue that day because they knew what he was claiming there. They knew what this passage was talking about. They knew it was a prophecy of what the Messiah would do, and he was claiming himself to be the Messiah. Pretty awesome reality. And why does he do that? Why does he choose to do that? We always ask that question. Is he, is he just there trying to poke the bear? What's his, his motivation? If you think about it, though, for a moment, the text is a perfect description of his mission statement while here on earth. It's a formal declaration of his purpose for coming. His purpose for coming was to offer hope to mankind. So let's now turn to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, and look at the words that he quoted. Start with verse 1. It says, The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. It's kind of interesting because this is through the mouth of Isaiah, but it's clearly written. It's clearly as the Holy Spirit directed Isaiah to speak. It's, it's clearly written for Jesus to say these specific things. So who's speaking? Isaiah, Jesus. It's a pretty powerful blend there. In the Old Testament, if you think about it, the Holy Spirit comes upon someone for the purpose of action, for them to do something. And so he was showing up with a purpose from God the Father. He's confirmed by the anointing, it says there, to bring good news. Good news. It's actually the exact same expression as we use present day for the word gospel. That's what good news means. And you got to ask, what is that gospel? Romans 1 describes it as that good news is the power to save. He's coming with the good news that he's arriving with the power to save because he's arriving for what? To be a substitute, to be an atonement, to be the payment for our sins on a cruel Roman cross. And who is this good news for you? See it right there in the text. Good news to the poor. Now, when we usually think of poor, we usually think of someone that's lacking resources. The word usage here is probably better determined as not somebody necessarily physically poor, but the word humble is maybe a better translation there. Because how often that's a necessary place to be before coming to Christ, where we're finally at the end of our, our ropes, where we've come to the conclusion, I can't fix me, I can't solve me. Every time I try to get going in the right direction, I keep failing, I need you. That's always the beginning point of where the gospel has power to save in our lives. So what ripple effect does this good news offer? We see it there as we continue. It says, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Uses some pretty powerful imagery here. He describes really three hurting groups, the brokenhearted, the captives, and those who are bound. For the brokenhearted, what does it say that he wants to do? He wants to bind up. 
First, I was like, what is, what is that talking about? I think the best way to descript, describe that is in medical terms. I don't know if you've ever had a broken bone or an injury where you had to wear a, a cast, but that's the same idea here. I've never actually broken a bone in my life, torn tendons and all kinds of messy stuff like that. But here, it's that same picture that when you come alongside of a break, what do you tend to do? You want to wrap something really tight so it doesn't have the ability to move and damage itself more. You want to do whatever you can to take the weight off of, the pressure off of that, and then giving it time to heal. I think about what a powerful picture that is as it relates to the brokenhearted. Brokenhearted person, he wants to mend your heart back together, holding you tight, carrying the weight of whatever you're going through, and then patiently walking with you, walking with you as you heal. Think about that. So many people during this season, as I look across the landscape of our church, across our culture, so many people, that would be an amazing description or accurate description of them as someone that's brokenhearted. They just need to heal. They need to lean into the hope that Jesus offers where he promises, I'll mend you. I'll restore you. I'll draw close. I'll hold tight to you as you're restored. That's what he came to do. His mission statement is partly to restore and to heal us. So, talks about one, brokenhearted, then proclaiming liberty to the captives. What are we captive to? Most any Sunday school answer, you could probably come up with a response to that. What we're captive to so often is some kind of a pattern of sin in our lives. Something that no matter how hard we try, you're just like, man, I just can't seem to break loose from that. I can't seem to be set free from that. It's interesting, and I don't want to make it too simplistic when dealing with sin, but when you look at what he's proclaiming, what he's saying, he says that he came to proclaim liberty to the captives. You're like, what does that look like? What is proclaiming liberty? That's like basically saying, all right, you're free to go. You're free to go. Oh, is that all that it is with this sin that's been besetting me for so long? That's what he describes here. That invitation that he offers to us. You can be done with it. I've carried, I've borne the weight of that sin. Now you don't have to live in it any longer. I love 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that tells us that there's always a way out of temptation. That he always provides a, a, a rescue or a route out of it. If we call out to him, if we lean into him. But truth is too often we don't really put up the fight. We don't really resist. We don't really lean into his strength, but he's offering it. He's proclaiming it that today can be the day, even as you're listening to this message where there's a new beginning, where there's freedom from the sin that entangles us. What's the next thing that he promises to offer is to open the prison for those who are bound 
Those who are bound, vivid imagery of this picture of being bound up, unable to move. I don't know if you're like this, but I really hate the idea of being restrained. The idea of anybody going and doing some kind of caving or, or, or anybody that's okay with an MRI machine, it makes no sense to me whatsoever. Anything that restricts, man, that is like the worst Fear. I don't know if it's a fear, but just kind of, that's not something that haunts me during the day, but I would specifically want to avoid it if possible. This is a great description of someone that's unable to move because of guilt and shame in their life. They just can't get free from it. They just can't seem to break out of it without outside assistance. And that's what I love about our Lord, the hope that he offers is regardless of how broken my heart is, how entangled in addiction I've been, or how bound by guilt and shame I've become, he offers the option to be healed, to be restored, to be brought back to the rightful place. I love that picture of his mission statement in our lives. Continue in verse 2. Says he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Interesting two parallels there, two very different things here. We'll, we'll start with the first one, this idea of the Lord's favor. For quite a number of years, probably about five years, I took different groups of college students to this outdoor mall outside of Chicago. And we'd spend time on the evening and we'd look for interactions with people about spiritual things. So often we'd have different kind of starting uh, points to the conversation and you end up in some really uh, just fantastic interactions. But one of the patterns I noticed over time is how often people, when you're talked about spiritual things, when you're interacting about that, they would say, I could never be forgiven. I've just gone too far. Or they'd use the expression, it's just too late for me. I've blown it too much. I'm beyond repair. That's why I love this first picture that he describes here. It says he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Like, what do you mean the year of the Lord's favor? What in the world is he talking about with that? It's interesting when you dig into that statement a little bit deeper, you realize its roots are found back in Leviticus 25 with the nation of Israel where God had set up something kind of cool. It was called the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, they would do something. On the 50th year, they would choose to give a fresh start across the board to everyone, whether it was related to debt, whether it was related to slaves, whether it was related to making payments on property. Basically, it was a clean slate. It was the year of Jubilee. No longer slaves. Your slate had been wiped clean. It's kind of cool to think of that picture as Jesus describes what he was coming to do. The hope that he was bringing to mankind was the exact thing that we're resistant or hesitant towards this idea that you're not beyond repair, that you're not beyond reach. You haven't done something that's pushed you too far from having the fresh start that he wants to give you. He also mentions the other side of the coin there to proclaim the Lord, uh, the year of the Lord's favor and the day of 
of vengeance of our God. It's kind of interesting. The idea of year is long. So God's long suffering and his patience with us, but then the day of his vengeance. Now, it's important for us to understand both sides of the coin that yes, we're offered forgiveness, but we also have the opposite. If this, there's a crossroads that you're going down, you can either go the route of his fresh start, his new beginning, or to experience the vengeance of God. You know, that's a, not a necessarily a, a, a holiday topic that we necessarily want to bring up. But if you think about the reality of what's at stake here, that is the reality. That at some point, a day is coming, and we don't know when that day is, that we'll stand before the Lord where there'll be, we'll breathe our last breath, and his vengeance, his, his judgment on mankind will unfold on each person individually who has rejected the provision of Jesus Christ. We also know in the book of Revelation that a day is coming where his judgment will be exercised on all of mankind that has rejected the provision of Jesus Christ. So really, when you think about our life choices, our decisions, it really comes down to a crossroad of which route are we going? Are we going towards the year of Jubilee or are we headed towards God's wrath? To me, to be honest, it's kind of silly that that's even a question that someone would wrestle with. But it's a great reminder for us why revenge shouldn't ever be on anywhere on our, uh, in our thought process of getting even with somebody or, or wanting to impose justice on someone when we know that that wrath is coming for anyone who isn't in Christ. We can release whatever offense has come towards us. God's got this covered ultimately. Continue. In the second part of verse two, so he sa says that he's the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. So last section, hope that he can restore something that seems lost. Now we see the hope that he can bring life. He changes our thinking. And we talk about this fairly often because scripture points to it fairly often that our thinking about mourning should look very different when we're a follower of Jesus Christ. For someone that's living a life apart from Christ, death is the worst possible thing that can happen. We shouldn't be shocked that the uh, fear that's crippling our planet currently with every risk of, of COVID shouldn't surprise us because really, if you don't have Christ, the end doesn't look so great for somebody. The, it's appropriate for somebody to, to mourn because the worst separation from God and eternal torment is on the horizon for that person. But for the person that puts their trust and hope in Jesus Christ, mourning looks very different. He describes it there as this, this picture of ashes being replaced with, with beauty, being adorned with oil, oils of gladness. Now that seems almost weird and strange at the thought of death where that would even be at all in the conversation. 
But I'll tell you what, when I attend different memorial services of somebody that's followed Jesus Christ faithfully, the perspective is drastically different. Just a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to attend our elder chairman, Doug Flagg, his brother, Dave, uh, unfortunately passed away at a young age, just in his early 50s. But I'll tell you what, being at that memorial service, you wouldn't necessarily know, other than people for sure going to miss him, that it was something of a time of sadness. It was, it was, so, it was so bathed in hope that the perspective, I'll tell you what, was unbelievable to me, whether it was his brother sharing, whether it was his wife sharing or his three sons that were sharing, all of them had the same exact lens, same thing with his best friend, the same exact lens of seeing, of turning something that's meant to be miserable ashes and bringing life back to it because our hope is that he can bring life out of death. That when we breathe our last breath, it's a transition from here into eternity. It's not necessarily a bad thing. That's what he came to do in our lives, regardless of what loss you've experienced, knowing that new life for the believer is on the other side of that. We'll end with these final uh, section there of verse three. It says that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So his intention, as I mentioned, we're coming up with, with all of these parts of his mission statement. One of his parts of his mission statement we see right here saying that those who have embraced him, they may be called what? Oaks of righteousness. <laughs> That's kind of a, a, a funny term if you think about it, not necessarily something that you use in everyday language, but that's the description that he wants to give to his followers. So you can try that out with somebody that's close by. You just let them know that they are an oak of righteousness. Uh, or maybe you need to add that to your uh, new uh, email signature. I don't know what you do with that, but it's pretty cool if you think about it. Trying that out. Living here in the kind of the suburbs of uh, Los Angeles, we don't have a hard time picturing what the uh, what an oak tree looks like. They're kind of surrounded by them. We've got them in a ton in our neighborhood. I think there's a thousand of them in the town next to us. But here's the idea. This picture of an oak is not hard for us to picture, but the idea of an oak of righteousness, that's a little bit more tricky. Because a lot of times you might say, Pastor Scott, I like the idea of being firm and unmovable and a constant and steady, but this picture of righteousness being seen before God as right, without sin, without blemish, man, that is not a description of my life. But here's the thing to understand, is that when you are wrapped in the grace of Jesus Christ, you're seen differently from God Almighty. When you're, you're seen through the, the lens of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, you're no longer seen for your mistakes. Now, some of us are a little bit further along than others in this whole righteousness. And in fact, it was funny this uh, last, uh, I think it was just this last week, one of my kids asked, they said, hey, hey dad, do, does grandma Linda still sin 
or is she done with that? <laughs> it's kind of funny. We could probably ask uh, Grandpa Allen. Uh, he might have a, a, a clearer picture on that. But either way, whether you're uh, far along the process of sanctification or whether you're just getting started, it doesn't change the fact the lens at which Jesus Christ sees you is not based on your merit. Kind of cool to think about that, that your identity has nothing to do with your merit when you're in Christ. It has everything to do with his merit because, uh, again, you're wrapped in the robe of Jesus Christ. Now, the alternative to that is for the non-believer, it has everything to do with your merit. Because you can either stand before the judgment seat of God, trying to stand on your own, saying, no, I said no thank you to God's provision of Jesus. I'm going to stand on my own based on my resume, my performance. You have that option. Or you can say, man, I've got a, a, a terrible resume. I cannot stand before a perfect God. And so I'm going to come humbly and embrace this new identity as an oak of righteousness, as an oak of righteousness. You see, how you view yourself is so critical. It's so critical because you can walk around as a defeated person saying, yeah, I'm just a, just a broken, messed up sinner. And where that is true, that is true for sure. We sin and we mess up. That's again, not the identity that God Almighty has placed on you. My question for you, just as I was thinking through it this week, I heard a, a message of someone that was bringing this up. He said, what message has someone spoken to you that if you would have accepted it, it would have been devastating to you? Again, what message has someone spoken to you that if you would have accepted it, it would have devastated you? Think about some of the different harsh things you've heard over the years about your identity or about what you're going to amount to. It's really heartbreaking some of the things that people have experienced and things that have been said about their identity. I remember even one that stuck out to me as I was reflecting on that question personally. In my early years in ministry, there's a coworker that heard me do something where I was speaking in a, uh, publicly in a group and he went to my boss. I later found out and said, you know what? He is a terrible communicator. That should definitely not be anything that he does in his role here. You should look at someone else to, to be in that position. It's kind of a, a heartbreaking thing where if I had embraced that, if I had taken that identity on myself Things would look very differently. You probably wouldn't be looking at this handsome bald man in the camera right now. But instead, if we are honest with ourselves, it doesn't matter what others say about you. It doesn't matter what you say about yourself. It only matters what God Almighty says about you. And what he calls you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is an oak of righteousness the planting of the Lord. I like that addition to it, that this isn't something that you've done, has nothing to do. It's just strictly, he's the one that's planted you. He's the one that's responsible for transforming you and making you more into his likeness. So Advent in Isaiah starts fittingly with hope, hope of his healing, hope of him restoring, hope of him bringing new life, and hope of him clarifying our identity as righteous 
oaks. It's kind of cool if you think about it that these prophecies are coming true all around us. As you encounter somebody that's experiencing his healing, as you cross paths with somebody that's been restored, as you come across somebody that's, been, that's clinging to, to new life despite a miserable loss, when you come across somebody that's living in their identity as a, as a son or child of the king, all of these things are prophetic only in the fact that we're getting to experience them present day because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to gather around this book of Isaiah and how you used that to paint the picture of what was to come through Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for that, that this was also perfectly orchestrated and perfectly planned. Our provision, our hope. I pray for the first person this, mor this morning or at whatever point we're listening to this, that's maybe described themselves as brokenhearted. They're just wanting, man, they, they'd love to have some of this hope, God. I ask that you would draw close to them, that you'd bind them up, that you'd draw them to yourself. The person that's d discouraged because of a pattern of sin that they're stuck in, I pray that you would set them free, that you'd release them from that prison. We thank you that all of our hope, anything that we can find hope in is always going back to you. We praise you for that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.
All right, church family. Well, thanks again for being with us online. Hopefully these times together are a blessing to you as usual. Any way we can serve you throughout the week, always feel free to reach out. We'd be thrilled uh, to come alongside you. God bless you. Have a great day.